Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. get it going so all right thank you for being here nice to meet you virtually thanks chris thanks for having me no problem um so you have a book constant comedy how i started comedy central and lost my sense of humor uh let's get into like what was your motivation to write the book and maybe a little bit just about it and we'll start conversation from there and get going well it's kind of an interesting story about how i wrote the book i didn't actually intend to write the book what I wanted to do was write, and I had retired, you know, I left work, and I took some courses in writing. I've been writing all my life, but I wanted to get better. You know, like anytime you get a great teacher, you can learn so much about them. So I did get to be a better writer, and I was mostly writing memoir, you know, stuff about my childhood and stuff, yeah. and uh, the people in the class were like, cool. And then I wrote one story about Comedy Central, and they went, wow, we never knew you did that. I said, really, is that interesting to you? And they said, yeah. So I said, all right, well, I'll write some more stories and see what happens. And then ultimately, I realized I had a book, I'm, you know, with a through line and a, and a story and a plot and characters and all the other stuff. So I wrote the book. And so you actually founded Comedy Central, is that correct? Yeah, I, I was the guy who pitched Comedy Central after having an idea. I mean, I had the idea for years and nobody really liked it. They didn't like the idea. Well, why is and, that? Just because of they didn't think of comedy as a TV show based on comedy would work, or or TV. There were, you know what? I'll, you know, I'll tell you one story. I, I, um, and this is a story that I start the book with. Okay. I was working as a finance and marketing analyst at HBO, and I got to HBO because I wanted to get close to programming and stuff. I love television, you know. That's what I wanted to work in, and so I was pretty much at the bottom of the organizational chart. 
But I decided I'd go pitch the head of HBO programming. Her name was Bridget. She was supposed to be some kind of a programming genius. And she was pretty much at the top of the organizational chart. But she did give me an appointment to see her. So I went in and I said, hey, Bridget, you know, I, I really think HBO should do a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, all-comedy <laughs> channel. And she said, stop right there. That's a terrible idea. And I'm going to tell you why. And she spent the next 15 minutes telling me why. Um, too expensive. Nobody wants to watch that much comedy. A lot of comedy on television already. The, the Actually, the one confusing thing she said to me, it wasn't that confusing, but it was, uh, it was unexpected, was no A-list comedian would want to be on an all-comedy channel. Interesting. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So anyway, I, you know, she said, and she ended, she ended with, well, you haven't been here that long. You don't know much about television, obviously. So thanks for coming in. Damn. <laughs> yeah. She pretty much threw a giant truckload of ice water on my head. Like um, but I walked out of there thinking she's wrong. Somebody's going to do a comedy network and uh, should might as well be us. And, and so that's that was, so you so that's what your, was your motivation to kind of get the Comedy Central going? My motivation started when I was like seven or eight years old. Okay, when I started watching comedy on TV. Yeah, I loved comedy. I was watching comedy on. Well, you probably don't know the show. Ed Sullivan show it was an, a I weekly. Yeah, a weekly one hour show. They had like ventriloquists on and mm -hmm. acrobats and you know singers. Everything. Everybody was on the Ed Sullivan show, and they had comedians. And I saw I saw Richard Pryor there for the first time. Um, his first appearance, he was like the skinny, <laughs> skinny kid. He did a great routine about getting beat up on the playground, which, of course, was near and dear to my heart, having been beaten up on the playground several times myself. Anyway, I thought when, you know, when the comedians were making that live audience laugh and then another 30 million people out in television land, I thought, man, that is a really powerful thing, comedy. And I just, I loved it. And I wanted to know more about it. I kind of became a comedy nerd pretty quickly. Did you have I was any kind of funny too. I was a funny kid. I was a Did funny you have kid. any aspirations of being an actual stand-up comedian or did you just mm. work on the, uh, the, you know, like the back end of things? You know what? I did a little bit of performing, not so much stand-up, a lot of sketch comedy. Okay. And I found what I really liked to do was write. Okay. Write, write comedy. When I got to high school, I, uh, I started an, an underground newspaper called The Tongue, and it was <clears throat> it was a satirical newspaper, you know, like taking apart teachers and stuff at school. We got in trouble, but um, that was kind of the idea. But it was funny. And even though we got in trouble, all the teachers said, that's eh, funny. So huh. that was that was what I found I really liked to do. And I my model for that was National Lampoon Magazine, which was, you know, one of the great comedic entities in the United States, I think, ever. You know, the yeah. three big ones I always think of are National Lampoon, which was a great magazine. And they also did, you know, all those movies, sure. <clears throat> including Animal House. Saturday Night Live, which, of course, has been comedy in America for a long, long time. And then Comedy Central, which, you know, came along. We did that in the late 80s. Yeah. Well, comedy's changed so much throughout those years. You know, you spoke about Saturday Night Live and national lampoon but like in today's day and age it's really not the same so to speak like saturday night live today doesn't seem to be have the same impact on i guess america or just television that 20 or 30 years ago it did you know when they had all those stand-up comedians at the time i mean do you agree or 
What are your thoughts? I guess I have to disagree a little. Um, Saturday Night Live has kind of ebbed and flowed through the years. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's, um, in the mid eighties <laughs> when we were starting, when we were starting up comedy, uh, comedy central, that was, uh, a real loser period for them. They, they just really had lost their mojo partly because of who is directing and stuff like that, man. I hope she's not listening to this <laughs> because if she is, she's, she's going to be real mad at me, but she knows that was, that was kind of a tough one. And, you know, and Lauren Michaels, who's, Lauren Michaels, he's, he's a great guy. I'm, I'm, met him he actually wanted me to work for him i decided not to but he is as one of my friends said an idiot savant he does one thing extremely well and that's produce sketch live sketch comedy and that's you know he started it and he's done it and look at all the great people that came out of there i know in the early days it was it was belushi and eddie murphy yeah. and you know all those guys who became really famous um chevy chase mm-hmm but, you know, through the years, it hasn't really kind of ebbed in terms of the number of comedians who have started there and made their careers there and everything else. And I do, you know, you, there, there have been some important, uh, important shows coming out of that. And also, listen, so many of the people who started on that became comedy influencers themselves, you know, and went on to do comedy shows, comedy movies, you know, became a big part of, of the comedy culture in America. So I think. I still think Saturday Night Live has some impact. Now, in the old days, there were three networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS. Correct. There was nothing on late night on NBC or anywhere else in the old days on Saturday night. It was a low viewership kind of period. And that's why they put, they put SNL on there. Yeah. And, of course, when it picked up an audience – you know, there were 20, 30 million people watching at a time. I mean, it was huge. It was just huge. You can't do that anymore with television. It's too fragmented. Cable came along, hundreds of cable channels, stole the audience. You know, now, now network television, which used to get like 30, they, we, we used to talk about 30 shares, meaning 30% of the people watching television were watching ABC. That's a 30 share. Now it's like, they get a three. It's a great, you know, it's a big night for them because. Um, it's like also streaming and, it, and wire cutters and people just getting away from. Well, wire cutters, hell. I mean, it's it's really about the fact that the networks don't own television anymore. The three big networks. And as far as cable television, even the, the top cable television networks, they're losing it to Netflix and Amazon. Yeah. And they're all going streaming. You know, last year was the 30th anniversary of, of Comedy Central. And they didn't celebrate it, which was kind of like, wow, that's really weird, man. Because we used to celebrate <laughs> when I was there. It was like, hey, it's our six month anniversary. Let's do, let's do something. Yeah. Um, and I think it's because they're really thinking about. And I, I don't know. I haven't talked to management there, but I think they're transitioning to, to streaming. You know, they're going to be like a streaming brand, like everybody else, because that's what Discovery Channel's doing. National Geographic's doing HBO, obviously. Yeah. I you mean, know, that that's, seems, that's where our world's going. It seems like or as far as television. That is the future. That is what's going to, uh, what, that is what's happening in television. So, you know, I, I, again, I give SNL a lot of credit for sticking around as a great brand. I hope comedy central sticks around as a great comedy brand. That's always associated with the daily show and the guys who are doing that. And, 
and uh, you know some of the other great shows that came out of there, and the and the other great um, people who started their careers there, who were given a chance to start their careers there, where nobody else could. Yeah. Do you know a show called Mystery Science Theater Three Thousand? I remember I had the robot when they were sitting yeah, in the cinema yeah, watching a big yeah. sci-fi movie or whatever. Yeah, I remember yeah. watching episodes. Yeah, story about that. We were we were we hadn't even launched yet, and we didn't know what we were going to put on the air. And we had, uh, we had a head writer at, at comedy and, and uh, this isn't like the late eighties. And he said, you know, talk like this. We, we really need some kind of a show where comedians watch bad movies and make comments. I said, Eddie, that sounds like a good idea. And everybody else did too. So we started working on that show. And then in the mail, in snail mail, on a video cassette, which, you know, you don't see those anymore, was Mystery Science Theater 3000 with a note saying, hey, we hear you guys are starting a comedy channel. Is this something you'd be interested in? Yeah. And that was, you know, that was before we launched. Of course, we put it on the air. We flew out to Minneapolis where they were producing it. They were producing it for like some small television station out there that was dying and they got to do anything they wanted. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? Um, And, and, First of all, they wouldn't have been able to get on the air anywhere else if it weren't for us, you know, if it weren't for comedy. You think ABC was going to put them on the air, that show? No. Uh-uh. Anyway, so that that's when I realized that if we did a, if, you know, we put this comedy channel together, um, it would be successful because great comedy would find us. That's That was my big hope. It wasn't only us, you know, sourcing and making comedy. It was great comedy coming to us. And that's, that's what happened. Well, I remember... The earliest memory, one of my earliest memories in 1999 when South Park came out and that Comedy Central but picked it, it up. Was, yeah, it was a little earlier than that, but go ahead. Oh, was it? Okay. So yeah. I guess that's when I first started watching it then. But anyway, I don't remember. I remember just, you had to watch Comedy Central if you wanted to watch South Park because that's what everyone was talking about at school. And yeah. so you were like, you, you were those guys who were just picking up these shows like that, right? We that, were those guys. And it did come in before I left. I okay. left in the mid nineties and the yeah. way it came in was interesting, <laughs> kind of similar to MST. These guys, of course, are brilliant. They did a Christmas card using the characters from, you know, from South, South Park. Park. And it was, I mean, you know how bad the show is in terms of profanity. Oh, for sure. Crazy. Yeah. Cause it was a cool thing to watch. When I was it like- was this Christmas card was the most profane out of, you know, just, completely out of control thing you know santa claus jesus the whole thing it was and they took apart every religion it only ran for about four or five minutes but every they sent it to every network right and every okay. network, every network wanted it except the ad sales guys at every network said i can't sell this the advertisers will kill me you know we can't put this on the air yeah. our ad sales guy named a guy named larry divney and he actually went on to be president of comedy central um he said We'll make it work. If you guys want to put it on, we'll make it work. So they did. They put yeah. it on. MTV wanted it very badly, but they wanted they like Comedy Central. So well, that's what I ended up. You mean on. like Matt and Trey Parker like Comedy yeah, yeah. Central? Yeah, yeah. They said, hey, we're you know, we're comedy. Let's be let's go on the comedy channel. Comedy Central. So makes that's sense. how that happened. Yeah. That makes sense. Huh. Hey, let me get back to something you asked, which was a really interesting question, which is okay, go ahead. Why did you want to write this book? You know. Yeah. And I told you the whole thing was a little bit accidental, but not really, because it's been a story I've told a long time. And one of the reasons I wanted to write it is because 
you know, like you, you saw Comedy Central in what, 1999 or when? Yeah, yeah, it was more around there. Right. And you probably thought, hey, this is a good channel. It's probably been successful for a long time. It probably started out successful. Cool. Yeah. Comedy Central started out, it was originally called the Comedy Channel. Okay. It was the biggest failure in television. When we launched, the press called us all kinds of, they said we weren't funny. They said it was a gong channel. What are these guys trying to do? Who do they think they are? I went to work every day the first year after we launched, thinking they were going to shut us down. I mean, it was my boss, the head of HBO. And believe me, that was a scary guy. His name was Michael Fuchs. He had just been named the most powerful man in Hollywood. And he was like, yeah, we're going to launch this. He was so excited about the comedy channel. Loved comedy. We're going to launch this thing. We're going to have a, you know, everybody's going to love it because we know comedy. We know how to do it. And I'm like, hey, Michael, tone it down, man. We haven't even launched yet. We don't know how this thing's going to work or what. And But he was out there in the press. And so when it when it didn't go well, the press, it was kind of payback time. Like, let's take Michael Fuchs down a few notches. The most powerful guy in Hollywood has fallen flat on his face. And I was, (laughs) believe me, they called me in, you know, he called me in and said, eh, he was actually the guy who said, um, it took a, uh, it took a comedy channel to get me to lose my sense of humor. He said that to me. And when things were going really bad about three or four months after we launched, and that's why I, you know, I subtitled my book that constant comedy, how I started comedy central and lost my sense of humor. Because when he said that to me, I said, Oh, you're right. Nobody's laughing here. You know, nobody's, it's just not going well. You know, there's no other way to say it. Well, how did, how did you deal with that? I mean, you're going to work every day and just hearing the critics just saying, you know, no, this, this is not going to work. You're going to fail. And just wondering if the next day you're going to have a job. I mean, was that just demeaning on your mental health and just putting you down or was the was that actually, you turned that into motivation that, Oh, I'm I'm going to make this work. I want to show everybody. I'm really glad you invoked my mental health. I think this is the first time I've ever actually had someone ask about my mental health. It's a big thing. I mean, especially (laughs) for me, I mean, you know, I mean, I've always, you know, yeah. it's so easy to be negative nowadays. And just, you know, when I have critics come down on anything, it's just like it plays into you and it gets at you know, get at to you for me anyway. I mean, that's me personally speaking. But yeah. Well, you know, again, it goes back to my my earliest conviction. You know, I, I had been thinking about a comedy network and all comedy network since graduate school. You know, so that was a few years before I even was at HBO. And when I came out of graduate school, I wanted to work in the television business. And I said, Hey, there's an all music channel, there's an all news channel, there's an all, you know, sports channel, ESPN, which was yeah. a baby channel at the time, showing girls lacrosse high school games. Seriously. I don't know. Um, I said, where is the all comedy channel? Because that's where I would want to work. And there wasn't one. And so I was convinced, given, you know, watching how the cable world was developing. I was convinced it was just a matter of time before someone showed up with one. So when I when I spoke to Bridget that time, the, you know, the head of HBO programming, and she said, here's why it's a bad idea. I thought she was wrong, but I thought, well, maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe I'm just missing this whole thing. But I, I kept pushing and I kept I, I finally got it to happen. And once I did, and as I said, you know, when MST came, I said, oh, man, good comedy is going to come to us. It, almost immediately that started happening, even, even though we were kind of failing. Comedians, the comedy scene, the stand-up comedy scene was just really getting started in the late 80s around the country. 
You know, I mean, it was at that point, every Holiday Inn had a two foot riser and had an open mic night. I mean, that's how big comedy was. Kids wanted, kids were saying, I don't want to be a rock star anymore. I want to be a stand up comedian. Was that because of Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy back then? It was because of the big stars. It was yeah. also because of HBO. You know, HBO in the mid 80s Correct. did something spectacular. They put on uncut one hour comedy specials of some of the great comedians. Uncut meaning whatever language you want yeah. to use. Robin Williams, you want to go nuts, go nuts, you know, and, and uh, uh, Eddie Murphy. Um, Robert Klein, who was a big hero of mine when I was in college, and I actually got to do a show with him, which was a big deal. Um, you know, they were making comedy a big deal in the mid 80s. And then the comedy, you know, the stand up comedy really took off. So the timing was good for a comedy channel to show up, even though, as I said, the first year was tough. Sure. But I wanted to, so just getting back to the original thing, I wanted to write this book to, to show people that anything that anything that's good. <clears throat> takes a lot of work and takes a lot of effort and takes a lot of heart on, on the part of a lot of people, not just me. What kept me going? I knew it was going to be a success. I, ha I had to just keep, keep saying it's going to happen. If this comment, if our comedy channel fails, somebody else will do it. I mean, you know, we just got to keep going. And, uh, and that's what I did. I just kept going. I kept going in the face of all kinds of horrible stuff. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. I mean, cause you know, they say if it's, hey, yeah, my dogs are barking, I'm sorry. But it said, you know, if you want to go or if you want to do something, it's not going to be easy, especially something as big as you're doing. But people, once they hit the first sign of, you know, difficulty in that line of path, as they immediately stop and they don't want to push forward. And you, for an example, if you push forward, I mean, great things can come. I mean, what when people ask me, you know, they ask me about what, you know, what advice or what, you know, what was important to the success of the of the channel. I say two things, passion and, uh, and vision, passion and vision. So passion was whenever I got a chance to, to pitch it, you want to deal with your dog? <laughs> Hold on. I was trying to put you on. We may stop. Come here. Go ahead. Sorry. I don't, I don't, I don't mean to cut you off like that. Go ahead. All right. He's good now. You can edit this thing, right? Yeah, I can. I'll cut that part out. <laughs> <laughs> but what I was saying was passion. You know, when I got a chance to pitch the head of the chairman of HBO, it was completely random. Somebody heard about what I was doing. It was my boss's boss and says, said, you know, the chairman should really hear about this. Let's go over there and talk to him right now. Now, I didn't have any, you know, materials. I didn't have any presentation materials or anything, but I had to go in there and I had to pitch it with all the passion I could muster. You know, they talk about elevator pitches. I always think that's like the wrong way to put it because in an elevator, you're kind of quiet and there's still- What exactly is an elevator pitch? An elevator pitch is supposed to be, okay, you got the distance between the, the lobby and the 18th floor. You happen to be standing there with somebody who might listen to what you have to say. That's how much time you have to do an elevator pitch. That's what they call it. Okay. Um, okay. Which means you got to be concise. You know, I mean, I think that's how it originally started. But again, I think it's a bad, it's a bad image. It's a bad, it's a bad way to put it because you got to be jumping up and down. You got to be like coming out of your skin with excitement when you're pitching something. Because if you're not, then you're nobody's, everybody's going to say, man, eh, sounds interesting, whatever. Yeah. But if you're, you know, like, we got to do this, you know, and what, and then vision was the other thing. 
what I told Michael, you know, he was, he was interested and he, he was asking me a lot of questions. I said, look, Michael, if this thing works, we are going to be the center of the comedy universe in 10 years. And he went, wow. Now, how do you capture the imagination of the chairman of a giant company? You tell them you're going to build another giant company that's going to be the greatest thing that ever lived. And, you know, that's how you do it. You don't say, and I hope it works. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you got to tell them how it's going to work, right? Yeah. You got it. You got to, you know, you got to show the faith. And that's what I kept doing all the way. But it was hard. And that's why I wrote the book. I wanted people to see that it was really hard. And we almost didn't make it. We almost yeah. didn't make it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it sounds like a great success story. And I'm always a fan of those. Like, I'm always a fan of the underdog stories that somebody's like through the battles and stuff. And then they come out on top of the mountain and get to wherever goals they're trying to get or whatever they're looking at in foreign life. Yeah, well, this is definitely one of those. I mean, yeah. um, I didn't feel like too much of an underdog in that, you know, had a job. We had a lot of experience. But, I mean, but, was, was HBO your first job or? It was my, no, actually, this will make you laugh. My first job out of college, I was an economist for three years at a consulting firm in Washington, D.C., working for the Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Energy and some private companies. And is that what you studied in college? I was an economics major. I oh, thought economics was so cool. And I was pretty good at it. I was good at it, right? So I got a job and man, I was working with the smartest people on earth, honestly, solving really, really hairy problems and building big econometric models of the energy economy and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then that's when I decided at the end of three years, I wanted to go back to school and trying to get a job in the television business. Cause that's what I really, I had always loved comedy. Did I mention that? And I, <laughs> and but it wasn't, my mother was a piano teacher. And one of the things she always said to me was, you can't make a living in the arts. And I said, well, what if I wanted to be a television writer? She said, no, no, nobody can make a living at that. I mean, it was like a stupid thing to say, right? Yeah. But that was her that was her conviction because, you know, doctor, lawyer, accountant, that those are the choices. So I, I became an economist, good job, smart people, loved it, but decided I didn't want to, you know, do that for the rest of my life. And I changed the channel is what I called it. I just said, one day I walked in, I said, I'm leaving. Um, and I'm going to get in the television business, but I'm going to go to business school first. And that's what I did. And business school turned out to be a great thing for the whole comedy situation in me really? because, yeah, you know, cause I went and it was, it was Wharton and they, they concentrate on finance and stuff like that. And I was a finance major. But when I first day I got there, I said, Hey, you know, I'm interested in television and film and the arts and theater and comedy. Anybody else like that around here? And they said, well, you know, there's a group of students every year put on a musical comedy show called the Wharton Follies. They write it themselves, perform it, the whole thing. You might check that out. So I went down there and I believed it. There were the, the, the choreographer for the thing had been a choreographer on Broadway. She just wanted out of that business and into, you know, investment banking. Yeah. So there were actors who would, you know, really good actors, really good writers, really good musicians who were just, you know, doing what I did, changing the channel. And so we put on the first year, a really good, funny show. And I loved it. And the second year I was head writer, you know, so I wrote most of the nice. show and it reminded me how much I loved comedy and how much I loved writing comedy and also 
that I was actually good at it. You know, people said, oh, man, that's a really funny show, really well written. So that that was around the time I said, yeah, there really should be a comedy channel in the world, you know, to celebrate comedy the way MTV celebrates music, rock music. Um, anyway. The interesting thing about that story is be, is that my first job was at CVS, which I stayed there a year. That was like working at the post office. It was like a gigantic place, you know, yeah. and I was nowhere near the product. And I'd say, hey, you know, comedy channel, they, they wouldn't even know what I'm talking about. They just they just say, hey, did you get that financial statement done yet? And and that was my job. You know, I worked hard at it. I worked hard at it. But I knew this wasn't where I was going to end up. So as luck would have it. Somebody called me from HBO who had worked at CBS, knew about my background and said, you know, they're looking for a guy here to do some economic modeling so that they can do f subscriber forecasting at HBO because, you know, they have subscribers. Yeah. And he said, you're the only guy I can think of in the whole business who knows anything about economic modeling. So I went and interviewed for the job and that's how I got into HBO. I did not walk in saying, hey, I got a great idea. I, I'd love to do a comedy show. I walked in there doing the exact job I had tried not to do <laughs> when I went back to business school, which yeah. was uh, economic modeling. And I did it for two years. And my conviction was, it, even though I don't want to do this, I'm going to do the best job I can because maybe I'll get noticed. And that's what happened. You know, people yeah. noticed me they, and they, I got a better job and I got in a position where I, you know, I could talk to people seriously about, you know, about my ideas. And they started to take me a little more seriously, Bridget aside. But <laughs> <laughs> and she came around. She came around. I don't want to trash her. Um, but you know, and, and the the moral of that particular story is like, it doesn't matter what job you're doing, think about the job you want to do and assume whatever you're doing is going to help you in your next job. Because that's yeah. pretty much that's pretty much what I found out. Whatever job I had helped in my next job yeah no i agree i mean you know i i was uh i worked at walmart for roughly three or four years during college and stuff and you know it's it sucks but you learn a lot there you know as far as about yourself and how people work and how management works and like you said it's a transferable skill you can take it with you i mean it's not a completely always. dead end but yeah i mean always yeah but that's always and people should realize that working retail especially dealing with dealing you know out there in front with people that's very important and uh it's all important. It's all important. To, it doesn't even matter what you want to do. Whatever you're doing is going to pay dividends in ways you can't even imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're doing it right, like you said, if you want to be the best burger flipper out there, yeah, it's going to pay dividends and you. It might take well, see, a while. That's the thing. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. And that's, that's one of the things I emphasize. You always have to tell people what you really want to do. Like if you're in at Burger King and you say, what I really want to do is manage a restaurant. But if you're flipping burgers on day two, don't phone it in. Do the best job you can, you know, and because that's the only way it'll work. Yeah. So those are the two things. Tell people what you want to do. Do a great job at whatever you're doing. It'll it'll help. Gotcha. Well, so you said a little bit ago you were the head writer. I mean, is that hard to work your way up to being head writer? And are you still writing much today? And how do, or how do you, you know, write? I was. I was the head writer at on the on the um, Warden Follies. That was okay. just a, you know the head writer at. The, I, I tell a story about the, a couple of stories about the head writer at at comedy. His name was Eddie Gordetsky, and he's still working today. He's a writer. He's a sitcom writer in Hollywood. Very funny guy. But one of the things about when I went into 
the comedy channel, we called it comedy channel first. I, we had to change the name right later was that I didn't know I, I loved comedy, but I love comedy the way you probably love, you know, some sport that you don't play like hockey. I don't know what yeah. you play where you don't, but you know, I, yeah, I love hockey. What do you know about the hockey business? Nothing. Right. What do you know about the hockey business? And in the same way, when I pitched this thing and they said, okay, and they gave me a job, that was a miracle to me. They actually said, we're going to do this and we're, we're putting you, you know, we're going to team you up with a guy named Stu Smiley. He's the head of comedy at HBO. I meet Stu Smiley. First thing he says to me, what do you know about comedy? First thing, he didn't say, hi, how are you? What do you know about comedy? And that's when I realized comedy is kind of a club, you know, and you got to, you're either in it or out of it. And man, was I not in it. Like their own tribe, sort of. Sorry? Like yeah, their own like, tribe. Yeah, like tribe. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, listen, Stu, compared to me, Stu had been working the business for 10 years. He knew every comic in the business. He knew everybody's agent, manager, home number, the whole nine yards. Mm -hmm. What did I know? I liked comedy. I had this swell idea for a channel, you know, and when I say it was an idea, it was very fleshed out. I had finances and programming and everything. So it wasn't like just, Hey, let's do a comedy channel. You know, it was, it was well thought enough and enough that well thought out enough that people said, yeah, that'll work. Um, but still I had to fight my way in and Eddie Gorodetsky, who was hired as the head writer. I won't say he hated me. He didn't hate me. But we didn't get along because he just thought he just always kept saying, I should be doing your job. <laughs> Whatever my job was at the time, I should be doing your job. You don't know anything about what you're doing. I mean, one of the jobs I had, one of the things I was responsible for was Mystery Science Theater I had to find bad movies yeah. that we could play, you know, and they we either had to license them, which was almost impossible um, from a studio or we had to find public domain movies, meaning like. Nobody owned the copyright to it anymore. Okay. That's why some of those old monster pictures, some of those old RKO pictures, It's a Wonderful Life, which used to play endlessly all the time on all the channels. That's because somebody forgot to renew the copyright on it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and then, then and, that. yeah, that's why that's why everybody huh. could play it. Um, uh, and um, NBC ultimately went back and got the copyright renewed or something. Anyway, you can't do that anymore. But the point is, I was in charge of finding those movies. And Eddie gave me a book. He gave me a book called Psychotronics. It's a great book. Encyclopedia of B-movies, essentially. Okay. And it had every B-movie made up to that point. And I studied it. And I was, you know, getting the movies. But Eddie thought I was still doing it wrong. Right? And he said, let me get the movies. I'll do it. I'll do a better job than you. I said, Eddie, you know, you can't just take everybody's job here because you are, you know, admittedly the funniest guy here and a writer. And you probably know the most about comedy, but it, it's, a, you know, you got to let other people do other stuff. Yeah. He, anyway, Eddie and I had differing opinions on what a channel should be. And Eddie was never hesitant to tell me what, <laughs> why I should be fired. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> So were you watching a lot of those movies though, and then putting them on Mystery Science, or, or yeah, you, I, you know what? It, it was interesting. It was it was a process. First of all, you had to make sure you get the movie. Then you had to make sure you had an, a decent print of the movie because some of these things they had, they were lying in a basement somewhere and had deteriorated. So like that's not going to work. And if you look at 
it's interesting for the television historians in your audience, which is probably, you know, a handful of people. Yeah. If you look at the first dozen episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000, man, we were pulling stuff that was pretty much unwatchable because the prints were so bad, you know, mm. but we got better. We found better prints and we just, you know, we figured it out, but it was a two stage process. Well, three, one is it, is the movie look like it's a movie Two, Can we get a decent print with a decent soundtrack three? And this was the hard part. Do the MST three got 3000 guys like it. Do they think it'll work? And they, they pretty much took one in, I'd say one in 15 or one in 20 of the ones I put in front of them, uh, which shows you how, you know, how good they were. But also, you know, they, they had to explain to me, because like, what do I know? They said, it has to be a certain kind of movie. You have to have pauses in it. You have to have some stupid stuff in it. You have yeah. to have, you know, I mean, it's just, you can't do that with every movie as effectively. So you had to pick and choose. Um, and amazingly, Mystery Science Theater 3000 is still around, you know, Rift Tracks, which is the guys who were doing MST 3000. Do you know that? I didn't realize it was still around. Yeah. Yeah. To be honest with you. HBO did it. Uh, it was on Sci-Fi for a long time. I mean, Mystery Science Theater, those guys are just out there doing it all the time. They do live shows, too. Anyway, I went to, I will say one thing. I went to, when I first met the guys, uh, it was so much fun for me. And uh, I went to one of the writers meetings, which is basically sitting there in front of a bad movie and all the writers would sit around and they'd record their comments, you know, and they'd write down and they'd have somebody write down what they were saying. Then they would do it again two or three times and then they would pick the best of them and then they would record the actual thing. It wasn't, I know it looked ad lib, right? Yeah, like but it was it's just, not, huh? Uh, you know, there's no Santa Claus either. And, but <laughs> <laughs> spoiler, spoiler. <laughs> but you know what? That's, that's the rule. Con great comedy takes a lot of work. You know, you see a guy doing a good tight five or 10 minutes of stand up comedy. He's been working on that thing for months, mm -hmm. if not longer. Yeah. I follow very, a couple very hard comedy podcasts and they talk about how, you know, if they, whenever they do a special, maybe once every two years that they were writing for a long time and they were actually going into, you know, little comedy clubs and actually working, working their jokes out or their little bits out until they actually get it right. You know, learning how to say it one way and say it a different way. Oh yeah. Listen, what the crowd even, picks up, man. Yeah. Exactly. It takes a while. You just can't write it and just say masterpiece. It's done. You know, it's yeah, exactly. a lot of work like you've been talking about. Listen, I learned a lot about comedy. I mean, ultimately I was, I guess I was accepted in the club, <laughs> Sounds like but, um, you know, ultimately, yeah, I moved up in the organization and things changed and I knew, I learned a lot about television and programming and marketing and all the things in, and comedy and all the things I had to know. So that by the time, you know, three years later, when we were still doing it, I knew, I kind of knew what I was doing as opposed to the, the first year. Um, and that was, you know, that was that was really fun. It was really fun. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, writing. So you know, when Richard Pryor and like Eddie Murphy had their specials out, you know, eighty years ago or whatever. I mean, not eighty years ago. Back in whenever, <laughs> back in whatever. Get my math right. In the eighties, you know, they could write and probably say what they wanted to. But when writing today, with you know, with the woke culture and political correctness, so to speak, I mean, is that tough for 
comedy writers and sketch writers just to, to do nowadays, like overanalyze every little thing they're writing or every sentence and worried about how it's going to get played out? It's not only tough, it's tragic. And, and your dog agrees. I think yeah. your dog is just right on the tragedy part of it. <laughs> comedy is about, you know, especially, you know, stand-up comedy, but all comedy is about seeing the world through the com comedian's eyes, you know, and having the world shown to you in a comic way through the comedian's eyes. And think about how interesting and important that is, especially when they're talking about something you might not have thought about or agreed with or, and I always point out as an important part of that, the rise of women comedians in the nineties, especially, you know, Joan Rivers has been around and everything. And, you know, she was terrific. And she and the subsequent comedians up to Samantha B and all the others, what they did is told people about what it's like to be a woman in America. And some of that stuff was pretty tough to hear, right? I mean, you know, some of those women comics were really just laying it out there. And people would say, you can't, how could you say that? How could you talk about that? Hey, you know, it was an experience. That's what it's like to be a woman in America. I think people ought to hear about it. And it was, it was given in a, in a comedic way, right? So sure, there were people in the audience who said, oh, man, you know, Sarah Silverman, she can't, she shouldn't talk about that. She shouldn't say that, you know. Yeah, it was funny, but she shouldn't do that. But people never shut her down. And people, some people probably learned a lot. I think a lot of guys learned a lot about what it was like to be a woman in America. And, uh, you know, like, be careful. Um, and I think there's a lot, you know, I think there's a lot of comedians they, they don't try and teach you things but they do have a perspective and what they do is they walk up to the line and sometimes they step over the line and that's the that's the excitement of being a comedian now if you start moving that line back and saying not only are we moving the line back but if you put your foot over it, we're going to chop it off and never hire you again and you know walk out on your axe and all that kind of stuff what'd you just do you just took you, you took the excitement out of comedy for the comedians and for the writers and everything else. I did uh, with a friend of mine, because remember, I mentioned it was a 30 year anniversary last year constant of uh, Comedy Central. We did a, a, a limited series of podcasts called Constant Comedy, where we interviewed the people and some of the comedians who were there in the beginning with us at Comedy, at comedy Channel and Comedy Central. It was fascinating and it was fabulous. But whenever we got to a comedian, they would always say the same thing. I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what we're going to do. This is horrible. We can't, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, we didn't do Jerry Seinfeld, but Jerry Seinfeld said recently, I'm not going to play colleges anymore because they shut me down for what I say. And I'm thinking Jerry Seinfeld, God, if there was ever an inoffensive comedian out there. Like, I thought he was pretty good. You know, that guy works clean. He works straight. I mean, you know, if you if you can't have Jerry Seinfeld, if people are walking out on Jerry Seinfeld and saying that, you know, you can't do that, then we've reached a bad point, a, a really bad point. And so, look, my hope is it swings back. What's going to happen? Chappelle just did an episode on, you know, HBO where everybody's like, oh, man, Chappelle can't do that. Did you see it? Did you see it? Yeah, I watched it. 
I watched it. Yeah. It wasn't so. that bad to me. I mean, he told us great story in it towards the end of it. And I understand, you know, I, I kind of get why the transgender community is talking about the way they are about it. But he was, it was, you know, that person was his deep friend and he was telling a story. And it was, it was very interesting to me and, and a good example. It was, it was kind of like when everybody says, Oh, you got to see this movie. It's the greatest movie I ever saw. You know, it's like the biggest movie. It's the greatest movie. Then you go see the movie, you go, yeah, it was good. Yeah. But you know, like the hype around Chappelle's show, I was expecting, you know, I had my seatbelt fastened, you know, I thought this was going to be an onslaught of really horrible stuff. And believe me, I'm a bleeding heart liberal. I don't want to take, you know, LGBTQ people apart. I, I think that's terrible. Okay. For comedians, too. And I'll talk about the difference if you want. Mm-hmm. And I watched Chappelle's show and I said, you know what? I bet a lot of people were talking about how bad it is and how offensive it is and how everything else it is. Didn't watch it. Or maybe they watched the first three minutes or maybe they heard about it, you know, because. I seen worse and I seen worse from people. And let me tell you what worse is in my book. Okay. You know what you can't do? You can't give permission. You can't put, put people or a people or a group down to the point where the audience thinks it's all right. Thinks you're giving permission to be violent against the person. You know what I mean? That makes perfect sense. I mean, there were white comedians working in the, in the South in the 1920s. And, you know, they were talking about African-Americans like it's okay. You know, you want to go lynch a few African-Americans, go ahead. You know, I mean, that's not what they were saying, but that whole concept of putting people down so that it's okay to, to be violent against them. That's my, that's where I draw the line. Chappelle didn't do that. That's, that's what I think. I, that was my takeaway. Chappelle did not do that. So if he had, I would have been angry. If he said, hey, you know, be a good good idea for you to go out and find somebody and, you know, punch him in the face. Listen, in this, I don't know if you were around in the late 60s, before Stonewall, people used to say, you know, let's go into New York City and go down to Greenwich Village and beat the crap out of some gay guys. That happened all the time. You know, you can't do that just for a fun thing to do. I mean, that's all just for a fun thing to do. And there was a lot of comedy about, you know, around that, you know, some old comedy stuff about hearing about it. Okay, you You can't do that. You you know, that's where I draw the line. Anyway, comedy should be as humanistic as any other art form, I think, you know, and yes, they're going to cross the line. Bill Maher, you know, we put Bill Maher's show on TV. He, He pitched me the show in a diner in L.A. in 1992. It's in the book. The whole thing. It's a, it's a pretty funny story. But anyway, he, he said to me, I want to do a show where people actually talk. Because talk shows, people don't talk. They talk about stupid stuff. He says, I want to talk about real issues. I want to step up to the line. And I want to go over the line. And I want to get in trouble. And I'm calling it politically incorrect. And we are going to be politically incorrect. That was a show. It's still on the air. Right. It's on HBO. It went to ABC. It went to and then he got thrown off the air there for a bad joke. Went to HBO. It's basically the same show. I don't know what he calls it. You know, something with Bill Moore, you know, but it's sorry. I was just saying, I think it's still pretty close to politically. politically It's it's the same show. It's basically the same show. He's been doing it for years and it's a great show. Um. So that that's, you know, and Bill is not going to pull back. And I hope most of the comedians don't pull back. But. 
if audiences stand up and leave when somebody says somebody starts a joke that they think might end up being offensive, that's what's happening. You know, I don't get the whole context of the whole joke or, yeah. Yeah. you know, like are you going to listen to what I'm talking about. Are you going to just get up and say, you can't use that. You can't say that you can't. Come on. Well, one over. thing I've noticed is that, you know, I'm going to listen to a couple of the comedians podcasts and stuff that, uh, you know, they might say a joke and they might not really believe on what they're saying it, but they're just saying it just to get laughs out of people, you know, and it might be completely, you know, like for a better word, fucked up, but you know, and I've heard them talk about it on their podcast before that. No, you know, I really don't believe that, but I just said that to be funny. You know, I just wanted to get a joke out or a rise out of people. Well, let me tell you about comedians. They get in trouble a lot for saying things they don't believe. And when they're not even thinking too hard about it. I mean, I know comedians who have gotten in trouble and they say, well, I don't really believe that. And I say, well, you know, listen, you said it. So it's something that's going to be associated with you. Yeah, forever. Chappelle. The guys who work on their, on their, you know, you know, Chappelle worked on that one hour for six months, at least, if not a year, every word, every nuance, every gesture. So, you know, listen, the comedian's primary job is to get a laugh. He wants to entertain people or she wants to entertain people, but you know, you gotta, you gotta work within your own framework of rules. And if your rules are, I can say anything I want about anything, as long as people laugh at it. Well, that's an approach, I guess, but yeah. you know, does it do justice to to what comedy can really be? I don't think so. Well, what are you doing now for comedy? I mean, do you have a favorite comedian you watch normally? Do you have a favorite show? Gary or- Goldman, I'll tell you, Gary Goldman is a, a particular favorite of mine now. You know, um, and uh, yeah, I would I would say he's he's my favorite. Look, you know, I honestly. I don't watch comedy and think about comedy as much as I did. I mean, I wrote the book um, last year and I just released the audio book, by the way, for nice people I'm rather audio book guy. Are you? Uh, well, you, well, if you enjoyed listening to me for the last hour, you, you oh, got eight, eight more coming at you. If you buy the, <laughs> buy the audio book um, and uh, people like it actually. Um, yeah. I narrate it. And nice. I, I I think about comedy a lot, but I'm not doing anything about it other than, you know, talking about it, talking to friends of mine, you know, from the old days and stuff like that. Um, but, and keeping my eye on the comedy scene a little bit, but not, not like I used to. I mean, is that just something just cause it's in the past and you're looking towards other things? No, I didn't, I, I left comedy central. Yeah. I was going I wanted to ask you like, when did you leave? And cause you left when it was started to get successful, correct? I left in the mid nineties and it was successful. Um, As in we were making money and everybody knew about us and all the other stuff. What was the key moment you knew it started to get successful? Oh, well, you know, as I said, there were, there were plenty of those moments, but we did, we did a show which we thought was pretty audacious at the time. It was live coverage of the president's state of the union address. And we did the live coverage and we had comedians commenting on the address at the same time. We did that in 1992. It was George Bush's address. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was George Bush's address. The first time we did it. And Al Franken was the comedian we got. Ironically enough, you know, he went on to be senator and then he went went on to get kicked out of being senator. But Al Franken, very smart guy and very funny. So we did this state of the union address 
live. And all of a sudden, people started noticing us and say, hey, these guys at Comedy Central, man, they're really doing some interesting stuff. They are changing comedy. Bingo. That's where we wanted to be. And from then on, that was 92. Politically Incorrect went on the air around the same time. MST 3000 was becoming a hit around the same time. So, you know, yeah, South Park and The Daily Show weren't on. John Stewart had been on uh, comedy. I tell some stories about the early days of John Stewart. Great guy. Um, And we knew he was great television at the time. But, um, you know, so the time by the time I left, what happened is they brought, brought in new management and fired old management. Not because it wasn't successful, just because MTV was moving in, taking over from HBO. So they wanted some new blood in there just to. And I said, actually, they said goodbye to me. I said, so what do you have to do to keep a job in this town? How about you start the channel? You work there for eight years and you make it successful. And then they say, thanks very much and show you the door. And it wasn't just me. It was like everybody I'd been working with. So. but I recovered and I went on to work as I was president of another channel called Court TV, which we made very successful and got sold to Turner for a lot of dough. And they said, thanks very much, Art, <laughs> for making it successful. We'll take it from here. And um, that was my last channel. I said, I'm, I'm not going to do this channel thing anymore. <laughs> and uh, I did some consulting. I did some work for Panasonic. I worked on 3D television which didn't really happen, but we did a 3D television wait, 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 programming wait, wait, thing. How did, how did, what did you do to help them with the 3D television? They, want, they needed programming. I mean, 3D, okay. 3D television technology was not, not all that difficult. And um, I learned about the television business. You know, you wanted to get an edge. Panasonic said, we're going to do 3D first and best. And they needed programming. So they hired me to, and my, I had partners at the time to, uh, to help them with that. Why that never really take off? People didn't want to wear the glasses, so every time they watch TV. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, That's pretty much it. But I'm always reminded of a story I heard along the way, which is about the army using tank simulators to train tank, you know, people how to drive tanks and operate tanks. And so they had these simulators, and they they wanted to make them better. And so they did all these experiments, and you know what they found? that you can improve the visuals, you can make it 3D, but the thing that makes it more realistic, sound. Make the sound better. And I think that was a good lesson. You know, television is about telling stories. Yeah, you got to have pictures, and the better the picture, the better you are. Sound is very important. But 3D, the directors love 3D. It was a new tool in their toolbox. You know, it was like, you know, when they first figured out how to do rack focus or uh you know or or dissolves or fades or whatever here's another thing 3d we can use that we can tell stories using 3d now but it caught on more with the movies and than television so i didn't you know i didn't realize sound made uh that big of a difference but I was, yeah isn't that cool yeah and you know just you saying that my first thought was that you know i went and saw the new spider-man roughly uh two or three days ago i can't remember now yeah, how was it it was you know uh, are you a fan of the marvel movies are you a fan <laughs> Like everybody else, you know, yeah, I, I mean, there, I mean you it's know, like a good way to spend a couple hours usually. Exactly. I mean, it's a good, fun movie. I mean, you know, I saw some reviews. Some people said it was the best Marvel movie ever made. I don't know, but it, it's good. It's a good, like you just said, a good way to spend a couple hours. You know, it wasn't bad. I wouldn't say yeah. it was the best movie I ever saw, but yeah, it was worth it. I'll see it. I'll yeah. definitely see it. But I'll I was just thinking it. about, you know, just 
you know, some of the seats in there, they have that rumble stuff in there and the uh, speakers right beside the seats and stuff. And I was like, I guess that does make for a better experience and going to the cinema. All right. You got to get involved. Of course I can read a book and get involved. So, uh, and you can read my book and get involved. <laughs> or listen to it as the audio book. Right? Or listen to it. Yeah. That's more speed. But um, I know we're getting a little short on time here, but um, I wanted to, you know, what do you think, what would you say to people or maybe yourself in a younger age when you were coming up in this industry and trying to get into, you know, television and try to become successful. And what would you say to people right yourself, maybe 30, 40 years ago or young people now, you got any advice for them? Yeah. Expect to pay your dues, you know, and I already gave the advice, pay your dues. You're going to end up working for free or as a PA for practically no money on the set. If you want to work production or as a, you know, a writer's room. If you want to be a writer, you're working in the writer's room practically for nothing, Xeroxing and getting coffee. That's what it is. You know, that's what you're going to, you don't walk into these jobs, you know? So expect to pay your dues, but I'll repeat it. Do a great job at whatever you're doing. Make sure you tell people what you really want to do. When, when you know, when you were writing the book, but did you set time, you know, talking about if you really want to do this, like, would you come home every night and say, okay, I'm going to write, a couple of paragraphs. I'm going to write a chapter. I'm going to, or that's a, that's a good question. Um, how did that work out for you? I think every writer has his own method of writing and own, you know, kind of quirks and stuff. The guys like who put out a book a year, Michael Connolly, for example, is big, I'm a big fan of, of his, uh, his fiction. Um, they get up every day and they write, they say, you know, I write 2000 words a day or I write 1500 words a day. Come hell or high water, good words, bad words, whatever it is. Yeah. But I write 1500 words a day. Me, I didn't have to make a living at this. I didn't even know if anybody would be interested in reading it or publishing it. Turns out they were. But so I didn't have any deadline. I just wanted to do a good job, basically. Mm -hmm. So I found that sometimes I would write sit down and write, you know, I like to write in the afternoon for some reason, but I'd sit down and write a few hundred words and I'd read it. It would make me laugh or I'd say, yeah, it's really good. I like that. And that was the best part. Or sometimes I'd write and I'd be there for four hours and I get 2000 words down, which is a lot. Let me tell you. And I read that and I'd say, yeah, it's pretty good. You know, it just, and some days I'd say, eh, I'm not writing to, I don't feel, I don't feel like writing. I don't have anything, you know, and, but you're thinking about it a lot. I will say this. I'm writing a novel now, we hope. Um, I'm about three quarters done. And uh, even when I'm not writing, I'm thinking about it. And then when I sit down and write, I end up writing stuff I hadn't even planned to write. Uh, it's not like I, some, some writers plan out, you know, index cards, every, every scene, every character, the whole thing. I don't really write like that. I, I, I've written a bunch of short stories, some of which have been published. I start with a character in a situation and I see what happens. Add characters, see other stuff coming by, vague idea of where the plot's going, but you know, something else could happen. Yeah. You know, I've, you know, I've noticed or not really noticed by myself, but this from actually doing other little projects with myself that if you just sit down and do the work, you know, people call it the muse. And even if you don't have anything to write right there, but as long as you make yourself say, Hey, I'm going to try to, write a paragraph or write 2000 words stuff will just start coming to you and they call it the news and even stuff that you didn't think about and just you know i guess you're doing so well sparks are just flying off the that's right that's what you that's, do. you just got to do that work. like you've been saying that's, 
you got to do the work one way or the other. So I, you know, I try and write four or five times, four or five days a week, you know, a couple of days don't happen. I, I don't kill myself over it. Okay. Well, final question. Um, you said you lost your sense of humor in the book. Did you find it back? Yes. <laughs> it didn't really go for that long. I'm, you know, you, you don't lose your sense of humor for very long. Uh, I called it that because I wanted to emphasize that in this memoir, I wanted to emphasize how tough it was and how hard it was on me and my mental health, as you, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, and, and then I think it does that. I think that subtitle does that. It says this was hard. Yeah. I mean, so another thing that sparked my head, I mean, so with your mental health, I mean, where there's, do you meditate? Do you just, is there things you do just to get yourself back into us, you know, like reset the neutral? Listen, I, let me tell you, something. as long as you're asking, there's yeah. a lot of self-doubt around along the way. I mean, I would go to work and say, rah, rah. And I go home to my wife and say, oh my God, I'm, I'm, yeah. this oh, thing's God. going, this thing's circling the drain. What am I going to do? And, you know, luckily my wife was, she's great. You know, I mean, she didn't say, don't worry about it. She said, you know, you're doing fine. Just keep doing what you're doing, you know? And, and then I go back to work and, you know, throw myself into it, solve problems, always going to get problems from it. That's what this book is about. The 75 things that came flying at me that said, this will, you know, you're not going to be able to pull this off and what I did to solve the problem. So that's, that's why, that's why I think it's a, I think it's an interesting book to read, whether you want to be in the television business, whether you want to be in any kind of business, because it's really up close and personal. I talk about all my feelings. I talk about my self-doubts. I talk about when I was feeling great, you know, and I talk about getting yelled at. I talk about having fights with people. It's all in there. And it's hard. I, I have not seen too many books, memoirs that talk about the television business that way. Yeah. Is that just because they don't want to? ruin their name or ruin anybody else's name and maybe hurt their future in that business. You, you know something when you write a memoir, you got to turn yourself inside out. Otherwise it's no fun. Yeah. I mean, for the reader, you got to really turn yourself inside out, put it all out there, be fearless. And that's what, that's what I did. Be fearless. I say we take it home on that one. Art. Sounds good to me. Listen, if anybody wants to buy my book, it's on Amazon. Exactly. Yeah. If it, you want know, to tell them the book it's on Amazon, where to find, if they want to find you, find more information, anything, anything you want to promote, go ahead. And yeah. And the other thing I'll say is the book's on Amazon, the audio book's just out. So you can find that on Amazon. And um, if you want to know more about me and see some more of my writing and stuff, artbellwriter.com is my website uh, and check it out. And I hope you enjoy it. Art, this was a pleasure. I appreciate you coming on here and sharing a little bit about your story. Yeah, I enjoyed it, Chris. Thank you for having me. Very good. All right. Be good to yourself, people. We're out of here.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. 